Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled around a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm with my BFF, Alex. Alex, who have we got on today? Does BFF even cover it, though? Soulmate. Better half. Yes. Creepy. Better half, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, let, let's introduce a guest. No one wants to listen to us two talk. Right, Jan Marie Knights is back. Uh, we had a fantastic time with her last time talking about Plantagenet. So Jan is a historian and journalist and is a keen researcher of local and Tudor history. She obviously published the Plantagenet Socialite, which we talked about before, but she's here today to talk to us about her new book, which is about the Tudor Socialite. Hello, Jan. Hello. It's nice to be back. I just bless you, the sound of your croaky voice. Uh, you are getting over COVID, aren't you? But you're going to soldier through this uh, because oh, he doesn't like talking about Tudors. Uh, we give him a rough time on this programme. Uh, so the first question that Chris has prepped for us is about Henry VII. And it says Henry VII's rule is a lot more interesting than it's usually given credit for, isn't it? Um, I, I agree with that. I'm obviously going to hear your answer. I think he gets slightly overshadowed by a very large ginger misogynist, doesn't he? Well, he, he does. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't know much about Henry VII, apart from the fact that he killed Richard III, and that used mm. to make me very unhappy. But I found actually a man I, I was surprised at. And I think what we all, all forget most of the time is that at Bosworth, Henry was only 28 and Richard III was 32 years old. And we have this idea of um, Henry as being an old man, but in actual fact, he was six feet, he was slender built, he was considered handsome, and he was described as um, having a really nice smile when he was happy or enjoying good conversation. Um, but, you know, we think of him as old, he collected taxes, he was miserly, didn't do much with courtly displays. And I yet think the problem is, isn't it, that he's he's very competent, he's very fiscally responsible, that's and that's it. what makes him a good king. And yeah, like, none of so, those things are sexy. Well, he had such good financial acumen. He paid his loans, wages, bills on time. And he supported merchants. And left a fortune. He did leave a fortune and made good trade agreements and he brought wealth into the economy and thereby stability after the Wars of the Roses. And what people don't know is he financed voyages of exploration. He gave money to Bartholomew Columbus, the brother to Christopher, 
And the only reason Ferdinand and Isabella got in on the act is his brother was captured by pirates on the way home. And in 1497 and 1498, commissioned John Cabot to sail, uh, cresting for New Islands, and it financed quite a lot of other voyages in the following years. Regarding being a miser, his account books suggest um, otherwise. He was a fond father. He bought musical instruments for his children. He played the lute and clavichord himself. Uh, he loved jugglers and tumblers and um, enjoyed listening to harpists, fiddlers, and the gifts of money throughout uh, to musicians and poets and singers. He paid for children in a garden who were singing. Um, he patronised printers, painters, writers. And, you know, people say, well, he didn't spend much money, but he was fond of hawking and hunting and playing tennis. He built a tennis court at Kenilworth. And I think the view of him is dominated by how he altered once Arthur died, his eldest son. Um, and then a year later, the death of his wife, Elizabeth, and they do seem to have been a very affectionate couple. But uh, he removed himself after she died to grieve privately. But he paid out £3,000 for her funeral. I mean, that's that's quite something. And... Uh, and oh, just a little little snippet. When a coffin was drawn through the streets of London to Westminster, uh, one side of the streets was lined all the way, um, burning torches, which were at the king's cost. And there was two thousand of them, and the citizens carried a further five thousand. And at Fenchurch Street, thirty-seven virgins, which was how old she was, were dressed in white linen, white and green wreaths on their heads, and each held a burning wax taper. So there you go. He, he he did spend money. And unlike previous kings, he kept his lords under control with a carrot and stick approach to taxation, which, as you said, built up his treasury nicely and left his successor, Henry VIII, quite rich. And he also selected his ministers for talent, initiative and efficiency. Um, and so your birth was no bar so long as you gave intelligent and loyal service. And the thing he said about himself was he would be called a king who chose to rule rather than be ruled. I think as well, a lot of how he reigns is necessity as well, because we have to remember that he is putting a lid on decades of civil war, isn't he? So he, he needs to be this stable person. And that doesn't necessarily mean spending no money. And unfortunately for the fortune he leaves behind, his son does not do it the same way. He doesn't piss money away on walls and that's what really costs money. Well, that's it. At the start of his reign, of course, he faced a certain amount of dissension with Yorkist Risings of Stokefield in 1487. And I came across a wonderful phrase of his um, when he referred to the priest who instructed Lambert Simnel and called him a dunghill knave, which I rather liked. Um, and, of course, that 10-year-old boy was sent to his to work in the kitchens. Um, there was a certain amount of dissension. I mean, you could have you could have killed him, couldn't you? Like, this guy is well, a pretender to your throne, which isn't your throne. The safest thing to do would have been to just lock the kid's head off, and he doesn't do that. Gives him a job. Or it was a very good propaganda move. mm there is another way of looking at it, um, because obviously there's still um, between uh, over him and Birkin Wilbur, there's still a certain amount of controversy. So, yeah, even um, if you are the rightful heir, you're now my servant, so go figure. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the Earl of Northumberland got murdered 
because that was said to be um, from resentment by the citizens because he didn't fight for Richard III. So there was all that going on. And then, of course, Perkin Warbeck was more serious. Uh, But he did have a very efficient spy network and he was a good propagandist, Henry, because in 1494 he created his second son, who was three, Henry, Duke of York, of course, then, um, to counter the Yorkist pretentious, and it showed the strength of his treasury because um, he obviously put on a really, really good display. And actually one of my favourite little anecdotes of that particular ceremony was um, Henry obviously had a keen sense of humour because uh, two knights decided to put on a display to make him laugh and they came in into the tilt yard in horses trapped in paper, uh, one in torn fragments and the other with two men playing dice of a drawing. And they did a slapstick comedy routine, running at each other with lances and missing, taking up swords um, to um, pretend that it it hurt while they were fighting. Um, And about then, of course, we're talking 10 years later, the Spanish ambassador wrote Henry's crown was undisputed, his government was strong, his wife beloved. Um, and that brought about the marriage of his eldest son, Arthur, to Catherine of Aragon. Um, and that placed England on the European stage as a power. Um, and uh, besides the actual wedding, people often think of Henry as, oh, he didn't, he didn't um, enjoy jousting or any of those things. He actually arranged a joust to celebrate the marriage, which was open to the public. And it was as marvellous as any put on by his son, which, of course, he's famed for. The trumpets blew and the challengers entered. And, you know, there's, uh, they come in, one's in a pavilion of white and green silk covered with turrets. And it's festing with red roses, of course, being the Lancastrian um, symbol. Another rode into the tilt in a red dragon led by a giant with a great tree in his hand. And at the mask later, this might sound a bit familiar, he brought in a castle drawn in by silver and gold lions and at the castle windows were eight ladies. Then came in a ship on wheels and a rope ladder was dropped. Hope and desire visited the castle as ambassadors from the Knights of Love. Ignored by the ladies, the knights came in and a mock assault took place with um, fruit, followed by dancing. So I had nothing new really between the reigns there. And, of course, Henry died on 21st of April at his manor of Richmond. He was only 52. Uh, But what he did leave was a peaceful accession for his son, who was 17. Well, this is where we're going to move on to King Henry. I'm surprised (laughs) surprised Alex hasn't made a comment yet. What a dick. (laughs) (laughs) I underline that, a total dick. But okay, we're gonna give we're gonna give Jan a chance to at least like provide some balance, yeah. aren't we? Well, yeah, because I, I how we constantly take the piss out of him on this podcast. If it's not in one of our journals, then definitely a down the pub sort of spiel is made on him for being. He so deserves it. Well, okay. yeah, but Jan, <laughs> you've got to give us something that um, makes him a little bit more likable. Is there something? I'll have a go. <laughs> I thought it was a bit of a tall order. And yeah. I, really, I really dug deep. <laughs> I was going to say, like, this is like this is the one point where, I mean, I get it when I get to the Duke of Windsor when I'm like, okay, remember that your job is not to just, like, 
do your stand-up routine on him. You actually have yeah. to give the historical fact behind it. So unfortunately, Henry VIII is your problem. So what did you find? <laughs> well, let me start off with, it began his reign, lauded as the most learned prince in Christendom. He encouraged scholars and artists, philosophers, musicians, etc. People like Erasmus found him charming. I don't know for how long. Uh, his reputation was, oh, the most gentle and affable prince in the world. Um, and then I thought, what else can I say about him? <laughs> well, he, he built ships. Um, he increased the English Navy, had a strong interest in guns, which can be seen at the Leeds Armoury or the Tower of London. And quite a lot of it is interesting, especially the way the armour grew. Um, And I believe he designed weapons. Um, I think I remember seeing a programme on the Tower of London with some mention of that. Of course, he had the Mary Rose built. Um, What is less well known is in August 1545, he actually attempted to recover her after she sank, uh, which he did just after leaving Portsmouth. Um, the, the report is sales and sail yards were laid on land. He employed a Venetian salvage crew, used three cables with engines tied to a mast to bring her up with a hulk placed either side. But it failed. One of the masts broke and Henry employed skilled salvage divers led by a West African called Jack Francis, who led a crew of eight divers. And their job was to retrieve the guns or as many as they could. So all agreed that Henry was handsome, above usual height, considered over six feet, uh, strong, muscular, fit, athletic, and he had a good brain when he used it. He enjoyed discussing medicine and astronomy, and he founded the Royal College of Physicians in 1518, uh, which everyone assumed was with a rationale for the common good because he passed Acts of Parliament to regulate and license medical practitioners. He also, although there's no details given, installed public water supplies and sewers, uh, which was seemed to be a bid to stop epidemics. And of course, the sweat was prevalent at the time. He devised his own herbal lotions, salves and ointments to help ease inflammation and pain for himself, friends and his household, including one which was said to be for the sweat, which he sent as a recipe to friends and relatives. And it was said to be a handful of sage, a handful of herb grace, a handful of elder leaves and a handful of red briar leaves ground together, strained with white wine, ginger, mixed. And you were supposed to drink a spoonful a day. And the only other thing I could find really with Henry was um, the only time I ever felt he might genuinely have been in love with Anne Boleyn and not just obsessed with her was when she fell sick of the sweat in 1528. And this is the letter he wrote. There came to me in the night the most afflicting news possible. I have to grieve for three causes. First, to hear of my mistress's sickness, whose health I desire as my own, and would willingly bear the half of yours to cure you, only half mind. Uh, Secondly, because I fear to suffer yet longer that absence which has already given me so much pain. And really, that's about it. And I thought, well, do you know, for somebody who was really scared of illness, the fact that he was actually willing to go half of it, I thought, yeah. said something. Actually, uh, almost contemplating somebody's well-being, half yes. contemplating someone's well-being above that of his <laughs> own, which I feel is about the nicest thing we can say. Yes, and that was all I could really find, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, to be fair, let's let's like, I know it's fun to mock Henry VIII because he's fat yeah. and ginger, but 
I mean, he's a product of his environment, isn't he? Yes, like, he, he is. was raised a prince. He was spoiled rotten. Then his brother dies and it would have amped up even more because he would have been the saviour of this new Tudor line. He's obsessed yeah. with sort of, I mean, they are usurpers, the Tudors, really. So he doesn't really belong on the throne. There's an insecurity <sighs> about keeping it. Uh, there's the lack of a male heir. Like, he is a product of his environment, his upbringing and his situation. But that doesn't make it OK to cut wives' heads off. And and to be, um, really, to turn yourself into a tyrant. Well, he's nothing's ever his bloody fault either, is it? Like, <laughs> I mean, and again, product of the the early modern period it's the woman's fault for not having a baby but i think there's and they're not now they believe that there's something right. that was wrong with him that was causing the well, miscarriage more likely, yeah yeah but you could also partly blame his mother because she spelt him rotten yeah and he really That's did true. miss her in a very big way um i also feel like had she been around to slap him silly a couple of times yeah might have helped and of course yeah. henry did try to I mean, I've often wondered when people said, oh, you know, Henry treated him quite badly, you know, kept his son by his side and this, that and the other. I'm thinking, well, what did he know that we didn't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was there a for it? <laughs> also as well, like, he's that's him doing his job. He wasn't raised from birth to be a king. They've got to no. cram this education in at the last minute after well, his was, brother dies. So was, take him um, everywhere. In a way, because he was uh, slated to go for the church, that was probably one of the worst things because he thought he was a great theologian. I'd, I would, yeah, because isn't it really embarrassing for everybody else when he starts writing pamphlets like <laughs> France that mocks him silly? Like, yeah. it's not really the done thing, is it? No. no. <laughs> <sighs> so, should we talk about? So, your book is The Tudor Socialite, and I imagine it's quite challenging pulling up the lives of everyday people from this far back. But yes. you've had a go at it. So can you tell us about Lady Agnes Hungerford? Yes, I was um, quite surprised at this one. Lady Agnes is the woman who on 20th of February 1523 was hanged at Tyburn. Her stepson, Walter Hungerford, accused her of murdering her first husband, who was John Cotell. Uh, and supposedly with her servants or one of the servants who got hanged with her. Uh, John was a steward of Sir Edward Hungerford, and she later married Edward as his second wife. Um, but people wonder about the accusation by her stepson because when Edward died, uh, he made a will with 11 witnesses, and he described himself as a whole perfect mind but sick in body, and he left everything to Agnes and made her his sole executrice. And that disinherited his 19-year-old son, and, of course, people wonder why. Anyway, she was arrested in January 1523, incarcerated in the Tower, and attainted of felony and murder of her first husband um, because her stepson alleged she had killed him and burnt his remains in the kitchen Great Range uh, at Farley Castle. And that was supposedly in July 1518. And by Christmas, Agnes and Edward had married um, Lady Agnes was buried at Great Friars in London uh, and the Crown um, took all her property and eventually gave it all to her stepson. Uh, there was an inventory taken before execution, which still exists, and it shows clearly it was her absolute property, so there's no denying that. And it seems to have been dictated by her as some is in first person, and you can find this in Archaeologia in one of the volumes. 
It listed all the furniture in the hall, the nursery, parlour, gallery, nine chambers, cellar, buttery, kitchen. And there's a list of her clothes, which shows how, how wealthy the couple were. Um, and for herself, she got gowns of crimson velvet with French sleeves, lined with tinsel, russet velvet with French sleeves. And bearing in mind, this is like 1520. Uh, black velvet with narrow sleeves with black satin edges, two of tawny chamlet, a kirtle of purple satin and black satin. And then she's got pairs of sleeves of crimson tinsel, cloth of gold, green tinsel and so on. Frontlets, uh, gold lined with crimson satin. I mean, great wonders of things. Um, the jewels are mentioned, and there's knots of small pearls with true love knots, a great flower of gold with a sapphire and bell. Some of the things were decorated with E and A, which would suggest a love match for Edward and Agnes. Anyway, July 1523, Water got everything. Uh, but he later became convicted of treason, witchcraft and homosexuality and was executed with Thomas Cromwell on the 28th of July, 1540. So he may have got his comeuppance. I hope he got it quicker than Thomas <laughs> Cromwell did. What was it, four um, goes to get his head off? Yeah, it was dreadful. They, they, they were both pretty much mangled. Okay. Moving on to, well, the fat ginger's now dead. <laughs> he's now dead in our little storyline here religion is completely and utterly tearing the country apart thanks to him people don't know what they're supposed to do to stay safe and his son edward now takes the throne uh, at nine and has a very short reign dies at 16 and uh, he manages well at least the people that are managing him manage to be complete and utter dicks too what do we know about his reign and how dickish is it compared to his father's awful reign? It's, it's, it's a harder one, this one, because, you know, Edward is sort of as being governed. Uh, I'm not sure that's completely true. Um, He's got agency, when, hasn't he? When Well, when, you, when I first thought about Edward, mm. you always get this idea he was sickly. Then he had a heart-rending death, which is heart-rending. But two years before he died, he was running in tawnies. Um, He displayed himself to his people, riding two to three miles in full armour. And he left behind a very interesting diary, which is what made me wonder whether he was as governed as people think, because he has very strong opinions. He has clashes with Mary over her disobedience to him in matters of religion. And um, he's very irritated, you can tell that, because she keeps telling him he's a minor. And he'll realise differently when he's older, but he's actually very intelligent and very educated. And he really did believe. I love the idea of this little ginger having a go at his big sister. And she's like, bitch, please, for the last 20 odd years, I've had our dad coming at me over religion and I stood up to him. You ain't got nothing I'm scared of. Well, that, that's probably very true, but it still makes interesting reading in his diary. Um, and of course, um, he he really, Edward actually believed he had ascended the throne to, di- to further direct the religious reform. I mean, he's classed as the first Protestant monarch. And of course, his uncle, who was Lord Protector and Governor, also made himself Earl of Hartwood to the Duke of Somerset. So we know him now as Protector Somerset. Um, he was also very keen on it. And, of course, between them, uh, roods and images were removed from the churches. Uh, the, the church walls that had the beautiful paintings were covered over with white paint. 
and then they were uh, covered with scripture texts, wonderful things that people have lost so much colour in their lives. They replaced the Mass by Holy Communion, and the Book of Common Prayer was bought and disseminated throughout, um, which it had, it, you know, to say it was by Thomas Cramer, it is full of quite lovely language, actually. Anyway, the anti-uniformity was brought in in January 1549, which um, obviously stated every church uh, must use um, the common book of prayer in the in the place of the Latin Missal, and any priest not so doing would be imprisoned for six months for a first offence, a year for a second, and life for a third. But note, no one was burned. They were just talked about being imprisoned. And, of course, all of this was coupled with rising prices, which resulted um, in unemployment and hardship and starvation. There were commons enclosures, which led to rebellions in many counties, including in Anglia, West Country, the Midlands, which were severely put down. Uh, you've got to be fair, though. The protector did try to rectify some of the problems because he actually did have sympathy um, and, and, and tried to stop the commons enclosures. Um, but he had a rival, uh, which was the Earl of Warwick, became Duke of Northumberland, of course, who proclaimed Somerset a traitor and managed to get him arrested. And in February 1550, the protector was charged that he had used his own authority without the Privy Council, which, by the way, had originally been 16 people of equal uh, power, which did not happen. Um and they said, you know, he did it without the council and he wrote and sealed orders of arrest, prisoner releases and mustard armies, talked with ambassadors alone, had rebuked, checked and taunted uh, councillors who held differing opinions to his own and had incited insurrections by making people rise because of enclosures and saying openly gentlemen were the cause. <laughs> Um, and he had written to nobles and gentlemen to speak fair to rebels and handle them gently while aiding the rebels with money of his own. So um, they they did arrest him again later. And of course, he was executed, although he was only found guilty of felony and not high treason. Um, people thought the good duke, as he became, uh, was saved and then found they were wrong. And that also nearly brought about a bit of insurrection. Um, but during that year, um, there was a second act of uniformity with a revised Book of Common Prayer, which I think we use today. I'm, I'm not sure about that one. And the proviso came that everyone had to attend church on Sundays. But by then, Edward was ill and he began to worsen until he died at eight in the evening, held in the arms of his friend Henry Sidney. And, and when you read what he went through those few months before his death, it really is heartrending. And I almost cried at the end of it because when you're reading history and you're reading the contemporary documents, you like reading it for the first time and you get really caught up in in emotions. We're talking, like you said, about the socialite, about the normal everyday people here. And Chris has put us some interesting people. I know he's put a couple that he finds really interesting, which is really cheeky of him. But the next person we have is a mur about a murder, and that's the <laughs> murder of Mr. Arden of Faversham. I mean, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I couldn't believe when I came across this. I mean, part of the brief was to find a bit that uh, some things about the times of the Tudors and not just about the monarchs. 
Um, and the murder of Mr. Arden was quite a cause celeb uh, and ended up with, you know, pamphlets illustrated by woodcuts. And, of course, there is a woodcut picture in the book. Um, and it also brought about plays. And basically, Thomas Arden was previously mayor of Faversham and he was murdered by his wife, Alice. And she was burnt at the stake in Canterbury on 14th of March, 15. Oh, I can't remember. Uh, when they first married, they were apparently um, considered a handsome couple, an affectionate couple. And he was said to love her so much, it was said he winked at the affair she began with a tailor called John Mosby. John Mosby made her dissatisfied in her marriage and she began to hate Thomas. Um, first off, she tried to poison him and this failed. Uh, there were another two attempts made because she asked her lover to uh, do something. And he first asked someone called Green to do the deed. And he decided to, um, and because he bore a grudge, apparently. And he hired two ruffians called Black Will and Shakebag. Interesting name. And they tried twice unsuccessfully uh, to waylay the, the man uh, once in Paul's churchyard. Um, they broke into a lodging and they tried to kill him there, but uh, a servant realised what was happening. And they missed waylaying him on his way home. So they decided he was rather hard to kill. So they were going to do it in his own parlour. So he came in. Sorry, and- hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I can't stop laughing at this. I'm so, so ridiculous. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> well, he came in um, from work or wherever he'd been um, on the night of Sunday, 15th of February, 1551, about seven o'clock. And he was met at his door by Mosby, who said, oh, let's have a game of backgammon while Alice prepares supper. So they sit down to the backgammon table, <laughs> as the woodcut shows, and there was a cupboard behind Thomas, and inside it was skulking Black Will, who stealthily emerged and attempted to strangle him, while Mosby hit him over the head with a 14-pound pressing iron. And, you know, he, he was then carried you know, half-conscious into his counting house, and Alice stabbed him seven or eight times in his chest with a knife. Talk about overkill. Oh, uh, wow, OK. And then Alice directed her servant to help her, that's her servant Elizabeth to help her clean up the blood and tidy the rushes which had been disarranged and then had the bloody cloth and the knife thrown into a tub by the side of the family well. 
In the meantime, her husband had invited two London grocers to sup with them, and she calmly entertained them when they arrived, kept saying, oh, I don't know where my husband's got to. <laughs> they began the snowing and, and they left, and the conspirators decided to move Thomas's body into the field adjoining the garden, 10 paces away from the garden gate. And then after a while, they began an outcry about, oh, my husband's missing. And when the neighbours searched and finally found the body, they found it had rushes sticking to the dead man's slippers and there were footsteps in snow leading back to the house. And uh, when they uh, tackled them, Alice immediately confessed and, uh, of course, then was imprisoned and, and, as I say, she uh, was burned. Um, Mosby was hanged in Smithfield and Elizabeth was burned at Faversham, cursing her mistress, apparently. <laughs> that is, I mean, it, blonde moment, who would have not realised that there's steps heading, so, sorry, footsteps in the snow, heading back to the house. I mean, it's pretty obvious who the murderer, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, nowadays, I guess we're a little bit, if a murder happens to people, but people are not that smart either. Never mind, ignore that comment. I thought I was not just the footsteps in the snow, they left his slippers on. Oh my God. <laughs> you might you might have thought putting the outside shoes back on. <laughs> exactly. Oh my days. I think Oh, never mind. Never mind. Okay, so <laughs> next in this line narrative we have the probably the shortest is it the shortest run in history? I think so, yes. Yeah, so Lady Jane Grey, I think that's a bit obvious if I say shortest run in history, everybody knows it's going to be Lady Jane Grey. And her sad ending, which actually does make me really sad. Yes. Tell us about her nine-day brief Well, I can't feel anything but sympathy like yourself for Queen Jane, because she was queen, she was proclaimed. And for her husband, Guildford, because I never quite understood why Mary felt he had to be executed. Anyway, Edward, of course, had wanted to stop Mary ascending the throne because of her Catholic beliefs and felt if he excluded one sister, he'd have to exclude the other. And um, his father had left the throne to heirs of the body of his niece, Frances, uh, which was daughter of his sister, Mary. So, i.e., that was Jane, now Dudley, of course, because she was married to Guildford, Catherine and Mary Grey. Uh, She was proclaimed queen on the 10th of July, And she arrived at the tower at three o'clock on that day. And she actually wrote a warrant, her first, to Sir Andrew Dudley, Keeper of the Wardrobe, for crimson velvet and holland cloth to cover two chairs and two clothes doors. Then her first letter was to the lieutenants of the shires, announcing her rightful accession and commanding them to defend her and resist the feigned and untrue claim of the Lady Mary. And on that day, 21 privy councillors replied to Mary's letter of 9th of July, rejecting her claim of being rightful queen. Um, And then her last act, really, was to hand her father-in-law, who was then the Duke of Northumberland, her sealed commission as lieutenant of her army to muster a force and arrest Mary. It was noted, though, in the London streets, as um, she arrived at the tower, not one person in the crowd called God Saver. No bonfires were lit and no feasting in the streets. And that was because the people believed the rightful queen was Mary, no matter what their betters might have thought. Um, by 19th July, Mary was proclaimed at the cross in Cheapside as Queen of England. 
And the people showed they were overjoyed. Caps were thrown in the air, streets crowded with people shouting, God save Queen Mary. Bonfires were lit, the tables grown with food, and people were singing and laughing and being very happy about it all. James' father, the Duke of Suffolk, heard the tumult and he left the tower, saw what was happening and went to the, went to the Tower Hill and proclaimed Mary as Queen himself. And he left his daughter alone and a prisoner with her husband, both accused of high treason and under guard. Um, and that's it after he returned. <clears throat> Sorry. And as we know, she was kept under guard at the tower and she was executed on 12th of February, 1554. After the Wyatt Rebellion, which I know we're probably going to talk about later, also because of her father trying to put her back on the throne. Uh, on the scaffold, she made a short speech declaring she knew little of the law and titles to the crown and that she was innocent of coveting it. It was said elsewhere she wrote a letter to Mary from the Tower saying she was confused when homage had been paid to her as Edward's heiress and had swooned and when the crown had been brought to her she had scrupled to try it on. Um, anyway, the executioner knelt before her to ask her forgiveness which she gave him willingly. Um, when she saw the block, she said, I pray you dispatch me quickly. She knelt, tied a handkerchief about her eyes and felt for the block and then couldn't find it. And we have that distressing scene where she's going, where is it? Where is it? And somebody on the scaffold gently guided her hands and she laid her head upon the block. But neither Jane nor Guildford had even reached 17. So I think, you know, I, I just feel really sad about that one. It does make me a little bit, I don't know, it's, I've mixed emotions about this. In I've read books by Alison Weir that talk about Lady Jane Grey and her reign and obviously a lot of fictitious things in between. And it just brings out these sorts of emotions that, you know, she is a young girl, she's naive, she doesn't really want to enter into this marriage that, and she's forced into it. She's forced into becoming queen. I mean, how much truth does that is there about well, you see, I, I, I'm, I'm in two minds really because she, she must have known herself. Um, I can understand her not knowing the ins and outs of the laws, but I don't know. I, I just feel she must have known that what she was doing wasn't completely on. But then she was ardently Protestant. Um, she has a very interesting um, treatise she writes about the, dif the differences between the Catholics and the Protestants, which I'd love to have used a bit from, but it, it was just really too long. And um, did, did her faith decide her to take it on anyway in the hopes that God did mean her to be queen and she was going to carry on fighting the good fight as Edward had started? It's just the whole Pandora's box, isn't it, that Henry yeah. VIII opens with the Reformation because it's not like he opened it and there was one form of Protestantism. It's it's a shit show. There's all kinds of sects and subsets and like there's no consensus on who's the official one and you just yeah. chuck your lot in with one and hope at this period in history, don't you? And then obviously yeah. Mary comes along and really rocks the boat by going back to Catholicism. And I think... I was going to say, even then, it's not just the Protestant factions, they're actually our Catholic factions, because there's an anti-papal Catholic yeah. faction, uh, which also entered the mix. 
So bearing that in mind, then I, the, the victor gets to do the talking, don't they? And yes. in as opposed to as far as the sisters go, Elizabeth is the victor. Protest, Protestantism what wins out, and so Mary is kind of remembered as this this hideous, tyrannical, burning people alive nut job. But actually, she burns less people alive than Elizabeth does, doesn't she? There's some nuance to actually how I. I feel like we did an episode on this on how Mary really has been hard done by by history. Well, you say that, but look at the length of the reigns. Mm. And and that's what people look at. Um, you know, the minute she was back with the Pope, the burning started. And that didn't start. The first burning was 1555. She only lives another three years, three and a bit years. And in that time, she burns that many people. So I think that's where she's got the reputation from and also the reputation because when when she had her failed pregnancy, she took it as a sign of God telling her she wasn't being ardent enough, so she burnt even more people. This is the and- thing, isn't it? She's so... I mean, and I have no doubt that she is, she's not, this isn't PR, it's not, it, she believes this with her heart and soul, this Catholicism yeah. stuff. And she's watched her dad destroy it and and not just destroyed the church which i think would have especially like broken her but society as well like when the monasteries come down we lose people's healthcare education mm. the country's a mess and it's kind of like it has always felt like she need she felt or like she needed to do something as dramatic to pull it back yeah and the other thing of course is she, i actually believe she wanted to be a good queen but i don't think she had the qualities she wasn't taught no. She was only really taught about religion. She wasn't taught about governing. And once she was married, she let Philip, even though he wasn't always there, um, he actually governed the country. Oh, she's got to um, be a psychological not. mess, hasn't she? Yeah. I mean, she's um, been a doted daughter, then disowned, then mm. come back, then basically tortured regarding her faith by her dad. Yeah. Um, and then she's had it all with her brother as well. Like, I just do you not feel like when you finally did get the power, I think I might have been a bit of a nutter as well but I think as well Mary misunderstood the mood of the people because she felt she got the mandate because they had you know upheld her claim to the throne um but it was from their own sense of justice and right and not religion yeah that doesn't necessarily mean they want to go back to a world where they're not allowed to read the bible someone has to read it to them and yeah. yeah so I think she misunderstood some of what was going on around her Plus, she didn't trust her own ministers and started trusting the Spanish ambassador and um, and, and was hiding, hiding what she was doing. You know, she was giving him all the state papers to read for his advice and not getting the advice of her own council. So there were lots of, you know, again, it's never clear cut. No, it's not. And I mean, like we, we've got back to talking about sort of lofty things like the state of religion in the country. But Alina, give us another one of these socialites or people high up in society, like completely ballsing up their lives, because I think people love those. Yeah, we've got the next one, which is the Archbishop and the Innkeepers. <laughs> I think that's the one Chris put in. He was telling you all about it. And that's the one he was the most excited for. So this is specifically Chris. In in May 1581, Edwin Sandys was the Archbishop of York and he was making a clerical visitation of South Yorkshire and he stopped for the night at an inn in Doncaster. He retired to his bedchamber and was suddenly awoken by the innkeeper bursting in 
Um, this was a man named Sissons. He burst into him holding a dagger, which he held to the archbishop's chest and accused him of sleeping with his wife. And the archbishop found he was actually in bed with a naked woman who did indeed turn out to be the innkeeper's wife. And he said, I don't know where she's come from. I, I don't remember coming into my room. Uh, but the ruckus brought forward um, uh, the sheriff of Yorkshire, Sir Robert Stapleton. And um, these three people uh, blackmailed the archbishop saying, give us some money um, and we want we want hush money for what we've seen. So um, Edwin foolishly uh, gave in. He gave Sissons £500 and Stapleton £200 and a lease worth £1,500 to bury the event. But then they carried on blackmailing him and he decided to do the sensible thing and he disclosed it all to the Privy Council, which it was then investigated and he was cleared. He stayed as Archbishop, cleared of any wrongdoing, and the Stapletons and the others were punished. So that's a simple one. But I leave it to you to decide whether the Archbishop knew he was in bed or not with a naked woman. I think he was up. Oh no, how did this happen? Oh yeah. no. <laughs> Alex is not believing him. I believe him. He probably got uh, set up. And... I, I think he was set up. I think <laughs> they thought they were going to make a quick buck. Yeah. <laughs> two against one here, two against one. And once yeah. you've given in to blackmail um, and they thought, oh, goody good. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Um, Chris, we've obviously been going through a, a list of Chris's favourite things that he's picked out of the book here. What's your favourite? What's your favourite anecdote you came out with when you were doing this book? Um, can I give you three very small ones? Yes, and we really will allow small. it. <laughs> <laughs> when Philip and Mary marry, there's a bloke called Edward Hunderhill who kept a, a diary. Um, we actually first meet him um, with Queen Jane, actually, but he's a gentleman prisoner, of, a pensioner of the Tower, and for the marriage, he was delegated as server and he recorded the meat of the second course was given to the bearers and he had carried a large, very delicately baked pasty of red deer on a great gold charger. He wrote oh, that he had to return the gold dish, but the pasty he sent to his wife to share with their friends, which I thought was rather nice. Uh, we hear a little bit of Edward Underhill through the book, so... Uh, the other one is when Anne Boleyn left Westminster Abbey after a coronation, she left it holding her father's hand, which I thought rather touching. But one of my favourites, actually, is um, in Elizabeth's reign. Um, there are many well-recorded, marvellous entertainments. Um, but one of my favourite anecdotes is after the failure of the Armada, commemorative medals were struck, one with pictures of Spanish ships, two of which sinking, and there was an inscription put on which referred to the Spanish admiral, the Duke of Medina Sidonia. And it said, he came, he saw, he fled. And it tickles me every time. <laughs> I always feel sorry for these Spanish guys washing up in places like the Shetlands as well. Like, Can you imagine trying to blend in on Shetland? <laughs> Hi, hola. Um, my ship appears to have gone. I was trying to conquer you, but in fairness, it wasn't my decision. I was just following orders. Do you mind if I move in and stay? Uh, and it doesn't, I mean, there's no accounts of mass murderings of any Spanish people that rocked up. They seem to have gone, all right. I think the other little anecdote from that time was one of the Spanish ships was sinking and Protestants went to rescue them and they go, come on, you Lutheran hens, bet you won't fight us. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Some Spanish aggro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> While they're thinking. 
Dan, this has been actually really exciting. I haven't been captured by by Tudors for a while, so thank <laughs> you for that one. Because it's nice to learn about the everyday person rather than, you know, when we talk yeah. about the Tudors, it's, oh, let's talk about Henry, let's talk about the fat man, you know, all of yeah. this, or Anne Boleyn, or something along those lines. Well, my, nice brief, to... my brief was really about the, the, the monarchs, but also about some of the life as well. So that's what I did try to do. Can you remind our listeners, though, the name of your book? Uh, it's The Tudor Socialite. Fabulous. We'll try to get that into our bookshop. And uh, I've yeah. had a really great time. I don't know about you, Alex, you and your wealth yeah, of knowledge of Tudor. Don't, don't tell Charlie because we're recording some point soon about more Cromwellian stuff. But don't don't tell her we had fun on the Tudors. <laughs> she'll be so upset (laughs) yeah don't because my whole thing is that i don't like any part of history apart from apart from modern so that's the secret that 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 people don't know that i actually enjoy yeah i think everybody's heard about your complete obsession with all the penis stuff at naples now on pompeii so you've completely blown that oh yeah (laughs) never mind anyway jan's like oh my god what Jan, you've got to come back and do something when when uh, when you've got something else. So give oh, us a I've shout. Got, and... I've got something coming. Actually, I was asked to do a socialite style of um, a socialite style book on Mary Queen of Scots, and I've finished it, and it's going off to the publishers this month. Okay, cool. So definitely, and it's due to be published in October. So we will have hope... you back in October. <laughs> so I hope people are going to like that because obviously it's um, a different style to um, an academic style book so i'm hoping exactly. that people will love it as much as they have like the other book right we will have you back on it's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on and um yeah thank you so much for joining us oh no thank you for asking me I'm, i was rather surprised you did ask me back after um i spoke so long on the other one oh, some <laughs> people are allowed to waffle and you are one <laughs> thank you very much you waffle with charm Oh, thank you. Alina, Alina has a very short attention span and she's still wide awake and excited, which shows you everything <laughs> you need to know. Thank you very much, both of you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Give them a gift they'll never forget, because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23.